the needs of students without making it impossible to administer the course. So those are the changes that the guys are going to be working on over the summer break and trying to you know, improve things. We are going to try to give something that resembles revision lessons prior to the, the exam. Uh, it may be that we take an extra week for the exam and before the exam actually starts for half an hour or an hour, we just go over some of the key points in the course or something like that. We may do a video with revision notes in, but there's a plan to have some sort of revision help, uh, some sort of notes, uh, some sort of handouts for students. These are all things being discussed, but uh, we can't, I can't promise any of them at this point in time, but that's the, these are the things that are on the table, like giving students like handouts of the text, giving students uh, some student-based revision notes, uh, giving students uh, revision classes prior to the exam, allowing people to reset. These are all things that are, inshallah, like we are, we are trying our best to, to see how many of them we could implement without making it impossible to do the course because sometimes I mean I have like a wish I, if, I, if I was doing this full time like I did nothing but essentials then I would love to give everybody full handwritten notes and you know revision classes and you know exams on separate days and so many different things that I would love to do if I was doing this full time with nothing else but the reality is as you know this is one class out of maybe for me one class out of eight in the week one class out of six in the week so it's it has to be doable. So we're working on a lot of things. Next question is all administrative things today. Can we get a few more days to submit the home assignment? Again, I, I, can't, really, I can't really say that. But uh, what I would say is this. Submit, if you haven't submitted the home assignment yet, submit it. Before I go away, I will close the submission. I will actually disable the page and close the submission. I won't take any more. But in the next few days, I'll take a submission. However, it may lose marks for being late. Generally, what we did last time is we will remove one credit for the submissions which are late. So, for example, if you got three credits last time, and I don't know, as far as I know, you haven't got the, I don't know if you got the results by email. As far as I know, you haven't got them yet. I've given, I have given them, but I think the, 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 uh, uh, the admin side are waiting to uh, upload them or get them entered into the system or something. But what you'll see is that if you were late in submitting, we will take away one credit from, from your final mark. So your mark is out of three credits. So you, you might get two credits out of three. So at the end of the day, it's still worth submitting it even if it is, if it is late. At some point, it'll just not get... It just won't get marked. I and mean, once I sit down to mark it, and the ones that are late are late. So maybe I will not sit down to mark it now for a few days at least, maybe four days or five days. So in that four or five days, anyone who submits late will lose a credit, but at least they will get something for it, um, inshallah. Okay. Anyone have anything that doesn't relate to the essentials? Yalla. Okay, not to, not to, I don't mean like that, but I mean like administration. Or if it does, it doesn't matter.
Okay, so the question relates to uh, an issue of qiraat in the Quran where sometimes in the Mus'haf you see a word that is written with a sad and above the sad there is a seen. And you are told when you are reading the Quran by a Tajweed teacher that this should be read with a seen. So for example, Musaytir or Musaytir as an example. Why are some words like this and not all words and does it exist in all of the Qira'at? We have to understand that the Qira'at are not based on Ijtihad. They are based on Talaqi. They are based on taking them from the Prophet And the Arabic language is very vast. So there are some forms of Arabic uh, in which words may be written with a letter, but that letter may be pronounced differently. Uh, for example, if we take the word sirat, sirat al-ladhina an'amta alayhim, the word sirat has been pronounced by the Arabs, and traditionally, with a sad and a seen and a zai, a Z. But the Z is not like a complete Z. It's a halfway, it's like a, what they call, I forgot what they call it, uh, but it's a blend between a Z and a, uh, and a sad. So you have sirat and sirat and zirat. All of which exist within the Arabic language. Now it's not for us to put them in the Qur'an wherever we like. Because the Qur'an is based upon what the Prophet ﷺ read. However, if we look at the Qira'at and we take them back to the Prophet ﷺ, we see that different Qira'at will pronounce them in different ways. They will always be written with a sad. However, some of them will pronounce them with a blend between a sad and a Zai, in this word only, in this place only, because that's what the Prophet ﷺ did in some of the times that he recited. So for example, in the Qira'ah of Khalaf uh, and Hamza, and I don't know how many other Qira'at it is in, but definitely in Khalaf and Hamza, they pronounce Sirat al-Ladheena an'amta alayhim as a cross between a Saad and a Zai. Sirat al-Ladheena an'amta alayhim, or alayhum, or in this case. That's because in this particular place, that's how the Prophet ﷺ pronounced it and it was passed down to the various shuyukh until it was sort of formalized in the recitation of uh, a particular imam, in this case, Khalaf and Hamza. It will always match the Mus'haf of uh, Uthman, uh, However, the pronunciation, the little scene at the top there, is there for your benefit. In the little scene above, for example, uh, for example, Yabasut or something like that. These uh, different letters that are above, or Musaytir or something like that, are there for your benefit. They're there to tell you that in this Qira'ah that you're reading here, it is either obligatory or recommended, depending on the qira'ah, for you to 
replace the sound of that sod with a seen or that for example sod with a zai or whatever it may be and that doesn't exist in all of the words even though it may exist in more words than in the Quran like in, in Arabic it may exist in more words in the Quran it may be in fewer because as we said the Quran is only taken from the Prophet and how he used to recite and so it's not uh, it's not valid for us to just say that because some of the Arabs pronounce this word like this we can pronounce this word like this in the Quran for the Quran, it has to be valid in Arabic and valid according to the Mus'haf of Uthman. And it also has to be, and it has to have a proof that it has to be authentically attributed to the Prophet as we said. So that is perhaps the best I can explain that particular issue. Just particular words. Now, it may be the case for all the words in some things. For example, in the word sirat, this is true every time the word sirat comes in the Quran. Like, for example, they will teach you, uh, when you read like a book of qiraat, they will say to you, every time this word comes in the Quran, the ruling is this. Or they may say to you that this is unique to this particular uh, place. So it's not the case that... Uh, Every, for example, it's not the case where you have a sector where you have a, a pause, like وَقِيلَ مَنْ رَاقْ or كَلَّا بَلْ رَانَ عَلَى قُلُوبِهِمْ It's not the case that every time you get كَلَّا بَلْ you have to take a, a pause. Or كَلَّا بَلْ followed by a ra, you have to take a pause. But in this particular ayah, كَلَّا بَلْ رَانَ عَلَى قُلُوبِهِمْ Or وَقِيلَ مَنْ Each one has its, has its rules. And it may be that there's a reason behind that. Like they will say that every time you get a sukoon followed by a ra in this qira'ah, there is this. For example, again if we take, uh, there is a qira'ah of hafs, or there is a riwayah from hafs, which is not the most common riwayah from hafs, but there is a riwayah from hafs, that every time you have a hamza after a sukoon, you should pause before reading the hamza. So, رَبُّ السَّمَاوَاتِ رَبُّ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ رَبُّ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ You should pause. And this is a rule that applies every time you get a sukoon followed by a, a hamza. So there is, all of those are, exist. There are one-off things. Uh, for example, بِسْمِ اللَّهِ مَجْرِيهَا وَمُرْسَاهَا This is a one-off. This uh, recital of this uh, this alif as a as a as a, with this the sound of a, a ya, this is only in hafs in one single place in the Quran. Bismillahi majareha wa mursaha. And there are some that follow rules, like every time there's a sukun followed by a hamza, this will happen. Or every time there's a there's a sad followed by a ta, the sad can be pronounced as a as a seen, for example. That could be a rule. Every time you get a sad followed by a ta, then the sad can be pronounced or should be pronounced as a scene, for example, in certain ways of reciting. Or it could apply to everything. Like every time the word sirat comes, you should pronounce it with a cross between a sad and a azai. So all of these exist. And the more you study the science, and it's not my greatest forte, but the more you 
you study it, the more you become aware of these differences and why they are. So if you look at that particular one with the Musaytir or Yabasut, just look at a book of Qiraat and they will explain to you whether it's a one-off or whether it's a, like in certain places or whether it's a general rule that Saad followed by Ta is always pronounced as a scene in Hafs, for example. Or whether it is something that has a, a, like, a, a, like a formula to it that you can apply in certain places but not in others. Uh, and Allah knows best. Okay. Uh, hmm. The, 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 the topic of the lecture is fiqh So we're looking at da'wah in the light of the seerah of the Prophet And that for me is a little bit different to fiqh sunnah looking at da'wah in the light of all of the ahadith, but more about looking at the seerah. So what does the seerah tell us about giving da'wah? But yeah, inshallah, the summary of it is we'll come out with a, a conclusion on the importance of da'wah and the characteristics of the da'iyah and the, uh, the methodology of giving da'wah according to the sunnah. Inshallah, I hope so. But let's find it difficult to talk about what I'm going to say because uh, my brain hasn't got that far yet. It's still worrying about essentials and exams. And Inshallah, after my next class at lunchtime, then it will it will switch to fiqh al-sirah, inshallah. Can you tell us a bit more about the process of this You said it was a method, but when did it originate? How did someone actually go through the entire Quran so that people would have this work Okay, so can we tell us a bit more, or can I tell you a bit more about al-istiqra? Uh, I'm not sure when it originated, but the like at least not off the top of my head, like the first person to mention it. Um, but the idea is, and it's very, it's 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 very difficult. It's very uh, requires. I think in reality it requires more than almost more than one, more than one person, because the reality is that it, for one person to go through the entire Quran and the Sunnah, what really happens is that one person puts forward a theory which they claim to be testable against the whole of the Qur'an and the Sunnah. I don't think that in reality somebody reads through the whole of the Qur'an and the Sunnah any like that I read through the Mus'haf and I read through Bukhari and Muslim and Abu Dawood and Tirmidhi and Nasai Ibn Majah and Musnad al-Imam Ahmad and then Ad-Darimi and then Ibn Abi Shayba and, and I think it's more the case that somebody puts forward a theory and says my suggestion is that in the whole of the Qur'an and the Sunnah, there are only, for example, three categories of this. And there are only, for example, three or seven or five types of divorce. Or circumstances of divorce or something like that. What then it does is it has to stand the test of time. It has to stand the test of people Nobody putting their hand up and saying, no, 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 no. There is a hadith here which says that you are wrong. There is an ayah here which includes another category. 
And I think the value in istiqra is not one person, but the value is when it stands the test of time, and when it, it, it is, it's left for a very long time, and nobody comes up with anything to, uh, to sort of refute that particular theory that is put forward. Uh, or at least even, because it's not consensus, it doesn't have to be that everybody agrees, but at least you would say that the person themselves has time to, to consider it. Because you start with a theory. Um, I mean, yeah, you may start reading the Qur'an and putting things into categories, and you form a theory. And my theory is, for example, that there are no more than three types of tawheed mentioned in the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And every kind of tawheed mentioned in the Qur'an and the Sunnah can be put into one of three categories. I then check it as much as I can. I rack my brain for any hadith. I probably research hadith on tawheed. I go through Bukhari and Muslim. I do everything I can and I'm still confident that there isn't any more than three. I then share that opinion with, you know, sort of the peers or the, the, the people of knowledge. And they also, in general, nobody comes up with, I mean, nobody kind of comes up with anything else. That's when you start talking about istiqra. I think that's more practical. Uh, the idea of istiqra is still what we said, that you read through the whole of the Quran and the Sunnah. But I think on a practical basis, what you do is you form a theory and then you try to disprove it and you try to find another category or another, another reason. So in some ways, it probably has an overlap with consensus. Uh, but it's not consensus. It has probably an overlap in the sense that the strongest istiqra is that which is backed up by a, a kind of consensus in the sense that nobody has, nobody else has come up and said, no, 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 there are other categories. Uh, with regard to tawheed, for example, being two or three categories, there are people who have come up with a fourth one, but they have been generally refuted and and uh, you know, uh, discounted by the scholars. And the people of knowledge have said, no, what you have done with this fourth category is you've misunderstood. You have made this fourth category in order to support your belief and your methodology. But in reality, this fourth one that you mentioned is actually a part of one of our three categories, and this is well established. So it, it doesn't mean it's not quite the same as consensus, but... It's, it has an overlap in the sense that the strongest istiqra is that which people have not, there is not a great deal of disagreement over. Like not a lot of people come up with another category. People generally agree. For example, at Darurat al-Khams, the five essential things the Sharia came to preserve, there is no disagreement. I don't think I know of any disagreement among any of the scholars on this. So it's it, it almost falls into consensus, even though the origin of it is istiqra. The origin of it is people going through and saying everything in the Sharia is clearly can be divided into one of five categories, and then probably writing that in a book and then letting someone else and and kind of everyone jumps on the bandwagon until nobody disagrees and everyone says, yeah, we, we all agree that the Sharia came to preserve these five essential things. So I think that's I guess that's. Practically, how it, I, I, at least that's how I understand that it works. Yeah, istiqra can happen today, even like. But we, the issue is, is consensus and consensus whether it can happen today is a long topic. That's a topic for one of the future usul al fiqh modules. 
but yes, uh, in general, you can still divide things into categories. And actually, it's very, very useful because it helps people to understand things. Like, I mean, for example, you can get books on, on fiqh made easy. And they basically work on the similar kind of process. Like that they will basically say, for example, talaq is one, two, three. It's either a talaq or a khula or a fasq. Okay, what is the dalil? Did the Prophet ﷺ say there is either talaq or a khula or a fasq? No, the dalil is istiqra. And when you go through the sunnah, marriages are only broken up by either talaq or either khula or either Fesqh, yani fesqh, where the qadi breaks the marriage without the permission of the husband or the wife, or one of them. And the qadi just says, your marriage is annulled, even though the husband says, I will not give her talaq, I will not give her khula, the qadi annuls the marriage. So by istiqra, we go through the Quran and the sunnah, we find that in the chapter of talaq, there is no other type of divorce except for either talaq or khula or uh, fesqh, for example. And that's useful for students because that helps the student to go, okay, it's either this one or this one or this one. Uh, then it's for someone else to come up and disprove that and say, no, actually, in Abi Dawood, there is narrated this. This is another kind. And then someone else could come back and say, no, actually, the kind that you narrated is actually just a type of the, it's, it's a subcategory of this one. But yeah, it's, until now, dividing, the, dividing things that are found in the Sharia into categories is is possible and, and useful. Although you would presume that there's not as many things that haven't already been nicely categorized. I mean, most things have been very nicely categorized. But if you listen to, to, to the shiuch when they give lectures, and it's often you hear them divide things into, like say, for example, when you go through the whole sharia, you find that talaq is only either talaq or khula or fasq. And then talaq is divided into talaq before uh, al-khalwa or talaq after khalwa or talaq before the mahar or talaq after the mahar so, like, and then they, they break it down for you in a really nice way and you can almost draw like a, a tree from it and that helps people to study and helps people to learn uh, but the consensus issue is more complicated like can we now get the same level of istiqra as we had in the past probably not because at the end of the day the, to get that quality of knowledge and to get that, like, to stand the test of time, to have something have lasted a thousand years and nobody has found another category, for sure we're not going to get that today. So there's definitely a, a difference in, in, uh, in quality. Is income from working in a mixed environment haram? I don't think you can make an absolute statement that income from working in a mixed environment is haram. But in general, working in a mixed environment in the way that it's understood today by people, like men and women just together in the office, uh, is certainly sinful. There's no doubt about that. Um, and it's certainly something somebody should try to uh, to change and some are worse than others no doubt there are some where maybe the environment is technically mixed but reality is that there are almost no there's no any real mixing that goes on 
Uh, and there are some which are yani, very bad, there are some which are very difficult. Uh, I think we should be careful about making statements about income being uh, haram. And that requires more evidence than saying that it is sinful. Something could be sinful, but to make your income haram, we have to be a little bit more cautious about that. We can say it's sinful, the person needs to change. But there are certain things we can say make your income haram. For example, if your, if your job involves haram, haram transactions, and if, for example, you are, your job is based upon riba, or it's based upon theft, or it's based upon cheating, this makes the income itself haram. As for you know, somebody who has a less than appropriate environment, uh, I think this requires further research. There are cases where maybe a mixed environment would make income haram. If that in, it got to a certain level where, and, and, and a certain where it, it, it affected, and the, or where the core of the thing was based upon it, I don't know, like a maybe a modeling agency or something like that. Like there are possibility, there are levels. But in general, uh, it's sinful and something somebody should aim to stop and change. Does dua have the ability to change qadr? Qadr is of two types. There is the qadr of the lawh al-mahfuz and there is the qadr which is the yearly and daily and the qadr of a person's lifespan. Any like what we call the qadr, the, the uh, once-in-a-lifetime qadr, the yearly qadr, and the daily qadr. The once-in-a-lifetime qadr is when the angel comes to blow the, uh, the, uh, the soul into the body. The once-in-a-year qadr happens on Laylatul Qadr. And the once-in-a-day qadr is that which is mentioned in Surah Al-Rahman. In every day, he is engaged in decreeing something. As for the law al-mahfuz, it does not change. Not with dua or with anything else. In other words, the change is written in the law al-mahfuz. So let's say somebody is, is destined for a huge failure and the angel has been told this year this person is going to have this big catastrophe it's going to happen and then the person makes dua and Allah removes that calamity from them this changed the yearly qadr of a person but it doesn't change what is written in the law al-mahfuz the law al-mahfuz remains as it was. In other words, in the law of Mahfud it's written, this calamity was going to come and then the person will make dua and this calamity will be averted from them. So nothing escapes what is written in the law of Mahfud, but yes, the qadr which is the qadr once in a lifetime or the yearly qadr or the daily qadr may change because of dua. The ruling and evidence for observing the niqab, uh, we have mentioned this many times, have lectures. I'm sure I've mentioned this in a lecture. And if I haven't, you can find this, inshallah ta'ala. I think Islam QA has a nice summary of this, inshallah. Uh, our time is a little bit limited, so I think that uh, it's probably too limited for this. 
But in my personal opinion, um, the niqab is uh, obligatory. Okay, last question from the guys, maybe, inshallah. Okay. Okay, what kinds of wealth are included when dividing the inheritance? In general, as a general rule, all of the person's wealth. Everything that they own. Now, the general ruling of inheritance is the first thing uh, that we, uh, we look at with regard to the inheritance is clearing the debts and funeral costs. And then the wasiyah, if they have bequ- bequeathed or bequested anything to someone. So, for example, they have uh, to someone who is not among their, the people who will inherit from them. Like they said to their friend, they want their friend to have or they want a charity to have a quarter or up to a third. And then we divide it out among the people. If all of the people inheriting agree to keep something as an object, like a car, as as a car, and they say, you know what it is, just keep it as a car and give it to this guy. Or one of the inheritors said, oh, I need a car. Give me the, like, out of my inheritance... Let's say the, uh, I'm supposed to get 50,000 dirhams. And this car, its value is 25,000 dirhams. And I need a car anyway. So just give me the car and then 25,000 dirhams in cash. As long as all of the other parties agree to that, and it, it has to be with agreement of all of the other parties, then there is no harm in it, inshallah. Uh, if there's a property and all of the inheritors agree, that we're not going to sell the property. Instead, we're going to live. For example, the, the person dies, he leaves behind a young son and daughter and his wife. In theory, they should sell the house and divide the money between them. But they say, you know what it is? We want to live in the house anyway. So what we will do is we will change the ownership of the house to reflect the inheritance. So we will give the, you know, the, there's a son, a daughter and a wife we will uh, give the wife her, uh, her eight and the remaining uh, share, we will divide it between the uh, son and the daughter, the son getting two-thirds of what remains and the daughter getting uh, one-third of what remains. And they change the, the deed to reflect that ownership. Then that is, if they all agree to do that, that's okay. But if one of them, for example, if, if it was left between two sons and they're old, you know, they're, they're like in their 30s or 30, 35, 40, they're both married, and one of them says, no, I want to sell the house and take the money, and the other one says, no, I want to keep the house and live in it, then uh, in this case, it has to be sold unless they can come to an agreement. Because the basic principle is all of the assets are sold and converted into cash, and then the, the, the wealth is distributed. Unless they can be distributed equally. Because there are some assets that don't need to be sold because they can be distributed equally. For example, the person has five exactly similar gold rings that are the same quality, the same weight, the same carat, the same standard. And the share is into fifths. And he one-fifth, 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 one-fifth. Then in this case, each one can be given one gold ring. 
But the problem you have is that when one of the gold rings is worth 10,000 dirhams, and one is worth five, and one is worth three. Now you can't easily give it out unless one of them says, my share of 25,000, I want the 10,000 dirham ring. Is that okay? And everyone else says, yeah, we agree. You can have it. We don't want it. You can take it. So they take it instead in lieu of their uh, 10,000 uh, dirhams, for example. But that has to be the basic principle is everything gets converted to cash unless either all of them, all of the items are the same and they can be distributed. Otherwise, it gets converted to cash unless the inheritors, all of them unanimously agree on not doing it for some reason. Like they say, we'll, use rent, we'll get rent from the property. So they put the property, divide it into the person's, each person's name, and then the rent is shared. You know, one-third, two-thirds to this person, one-third to this person, and so on. But again, as soon as they then you know, want to sell the issue, become, it comes back again. That's a general rule. I'm sure there are many, many, many masail in the books of fiqh which talk about this issue and talk about exceptions and circumstances. But as a general rule, all of the person's wealth is included in their uh, inheritance, everything that they own. Uh, so we have to be sort of wary uh, of that. Uh, I did have... Uh, that's okay, I will answer that maybe another time. I think we have to stop anyways because it's getting late. So, inshallah, we will stop there. Jazakumullah khairan wa barakallahu feekum. And, oh, we do have one second, sorry, one more. I knew I had one more. I knew it was there. In the last class, uh, you mentioned the niyyah does not necessarily have to be done by saying it or not saying it, but rather being present. No, I didn't say being present. Can you explain this a bit more? No, I didn't say being present. I said you have to know what you are doing. The niyyah is never said out loud, never, under any circumstances except hajj and umrah. And it's never said in the heart under any circumstances. But the niyyah, it means knowing what you are doing. So if I were to ask you when you're standing in the saf, what are you going to do now? One of two things applies. Either you can answer that question or either you can't answer that question. Either you can answer that question and say, right now I'm about to pray Dhuhr Salah. How many raka'ah? Four raka'ah. Behind the Imam? Behind the Imam. Fard or Sunnah? Fard. As long as you can answer those questions if you were to be asked them, then this is your niyyah. A niyyah is the ability or the, the consciousness of what you are about to do. If you can't answer those questions... For example, I say to you, what are you about to pray? Say, prayer? Oh, um, uh, what time? I'm not sure. Uh, let me see. What? I, I, I don't know. I just, I just woke up. Like, you know, it happens. Like the other day, any one of my kids went to sleep. I woke them up for salah. It's like, what salah is it? Fajr? Like, it's Maghrib. <laughs> Yeah, so you, 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 it happens to people. This is an example of no intention because if I asked him what he's praying, he doesn't know what he's praying. I said to him, what are you praying? He's like, is it Fajr? No, it's Maghrib. Maghrib? He just went to sleep 10 minutes before that, but he was tired. So this is an example of not having intention. But as long as you have the ability to answer something, and you have the ability to answer what you're about to do, then that is your intention. Intention is a consciousness or an awareness of what you're about to do.
and not uh, sort of saying, I don't know what I'm about to do. Or like I gave the example of wudu. And sometimes you wash your hands and you just start washing your mouth and your face. And at no point have you thought about wudu at all. You're not even like if someone asked you what you're doing, you're like, oh, what am I doing? I'm just, you know, robotically washing my hands and my nose and my face. But you didn't make wudu because you, didn't, you weren't aware before you started the action. You were not aware that you were going to make wudu. So that's what your intention is. And hopefully this is clear. Jazakumullahu khayran wa barakallahu feekum. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik shadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayka. Your internet is probably broken. Uh, try to connect your internet. Like how can I how can I open a new tab? Okay. Open a new tab. Sorry, sorry, sorry.